Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. I hope you're doing well. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John, the Gospel according to John, in the 13th chapter. In a moment, we'll read together verses 1 through 20. Before we turn there and read, let me just ask you a question. How often, and I don't expect you to answer this out loud, how often have you been disappointed in a person's leadership? Maybe you voted for a political candidate in confidence, only to discover that they betrayed the promises made on the campaign trail once in office. A new team leader, manager, or executive in your company seems promising, but over time... They seem plagued by laziness or incompetence with no desire to grow. One of the biggest leadership disappointments is to see someone in a position of power and authority use that for personal benefit instead of using it to serve those under their charge. Let me ask you this question, what makes a good leader? What makes a good leader? It was June of 2013, I was in Houston, Texas, and I was standing in line for a cup of coffee at the convention center there, and it just so happened that beside me in line was someone who was attending seminary and working for a parachurch organization as he completed his training for ministry. So I struck up a conversation with the guy, and I asked him his story. How is it that you came to, uh, to feel called to ministry, to be pursuing ministry? I recognized that he was my age or older. Do you ever find yourself that you always just seem to assume everyone's older than you? <laughs> no? So I, mean, I just, you know, Jonathan's nearly 10 years younger than me, but I just assume he's a year or two older than me. I just kind of view him as like an uncle, <laughs> Ken like a grandfather, <laughs> Dan and John, I don't know what that means for you, but I find myself doing that often, I'll, I'll be talking to someone, I'm like, oh, they're, they're probably for sure a few years older than me, and I find out they're a few years younger than me, that's really demoralizing, but anyway, I was talking to this, this guy, and I, I assumed he's at least my age, I knew I'd been uh, in ministry for eight years, so I knew he was doing this a little bit later than just right out of college. And as he was sharing his story with me, he told me that he was pursuing politics. And he had arrived. He had worked uh, in the White House for the President of the United States. But while he was there in Washington, D.C., that he was attending a church. And he said that as I was there in the church and more and more involved... He said, I watched the way that D.C. did power, and then I watched how my pastors did power. And I decided I would rather give my life to ministry than to politics. Wow. I mean, should this not be so? That there is a marked difference between the church and the world. A noticeable contrast. Please don't miss what I'm saying. I'm not saying that ministry is the only valid vocation, nor was this guy. He was simply saying that the difference that he witnessed is what God used to call him to vocational ministry. 
What I am saying is there should be a difference between the church and the world. The church when we're gathered and when we're scattered in our various vocations throughout the community this coming week. When you serve in the capacities that God has called you, there should be a difference between us and them. There should be a difference between those who belong to the Lord and those who don't. And the reason why there should be a difference is because of who our king is. Because our king is a servant king. We've heard it, we've sung it together, sang it. I don't know which one of those is right. Sang it together, sung it together. I prefer the the one that's wrong. So whichever one's wrong, just assume that's the one I said. All right? But we've been talking about this together here this morning. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The passage before us today shows us that we are to serve others in the same manner that we have been served by our King. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. This is God's Word. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he'd washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, 
that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who receives who, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for we confess together, indeed it is good, that the very words of life. Lord, we confess, as we have sang, very glorious things together this morning in praises of the Lamb who has taken away all of our sins. We confess this week that we have not praised him wholly and continually with our lives, with our attitudes, with our heart postures and actions as we ought. Father, we pray that even this morning that your word would call us back to you. Father, that you would increase our faith in you that Christ would become more precious to us this morning as we behold him in your word. And Father, that the love that you have given to us in your son would abound and overflow from our lives into those around us. And that it would be for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, here we can notice several things in this passage as we continue this series together going toward Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. Here in John's Gospel, this is a turn in the Gospel. The first 12 chapters have really covered much of three years of Jesus' life and ministry. And at this point, we hit a snail's pace, if you will. It slows down dramatically as we focus mainly on this final week of Jesus' life. And Jesus is about to do something that points to two great realities. It points to how he is serving them and what kind of king he is, and then what kind of people they should be as his followers. And so what I want us to do this morning as we look at the first part of this passage together is just to consider. Consider three things. We want to consider the servant, the service, and the served. There is no PowerPoint, so you just have to write it down, all right? So we want you to consider the servant, the service, and the served. The first thing that we can notice here is that we are looking at the servant, Christ himself. This says this was before the feast of Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart. And so if you'll remember back at the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 2, that very first miracle there at Cana where he turned the water to wine, and his mother had asked him, to take action, he said, woman, is not yet my time, right? The hour is not yet here. Well, here we see this clear turn in the gospel when the hour is here. When Jesus, the kind of king he is, is truly going to be revealed. And so this is the beginning of that playing out through the end of John's gospel account. And so he says, the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And having loved his own... Where in, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's a beautiful statement. And we'll emphasize it again in a moment. But him saying his love, John noticing his love for his own, to which he loved them to the end. Not just the end of his life, not just the end of your life, but to the ultimate end of making all things new. What a beautiful thing. And what a glorious truth for us as believers to rest on this morning. 
that he's loved us to the end, never failing, steadfast love. And so you'll see there also, it says in verse 2 that this was during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And so what John's noting here is that Judas's actions are satanic. I mean, it's really just like we see in the garden where Adam and Eve turn on God in his benevolence and goodness of giving to them. It is there, Satan, who is behind it as well. It is satanic in nature. And so in verse 3, does it mean that Judas isn't responsible for his actions any less than Adam and Eve were responsible for their actions, by the way? Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back. Two things to notice there. In John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. In Galatians 3.20, Paul tells us that it was of love that Christ gave his life for us. In John 3.16, we're told that it's love that the Father sent the Son. Here we're noticing that the Son has all authority and all power, and he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He'll mention that several times. He could have stopped this, but it was out of love that he laid down his life. No one takes it from him. Just notice that here implicit in this passage. Jesus could have put the brakes on the whole thing, yet went to the cross willingly. And so we see that Jesus also, in this service that he's about to do, knows full well who he is. He knows that he is from God the Father, that he's about to return to God the Father. You could go to John 17 and look at the glory that he shared with God the Father beforehand and the glory that will be uh, given to him again in the end. Thank you. Meatloaf. The glory that will be given to him again. And so here we see uh, that, that this is Christ going and serving willingly with full recognition of his greatness and his glory. Not a thing to be held on to, Philippians 2, that we'll turn to again in a minute. Not a thing to be grasped with greedy hands, but a thing to be laid down to serve. Now, several things if we consider the servant. One, he's the master. He's going to say this in a minute. They'll call him Lord. He's their teacher. So the master is serving his subjects. But friends, it's even greater than that. He's the creator serving the creature. Remember John's gospel and how it began? It says this, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here we have creator serving creature. This is an amazing thing. And his glory is, 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 is noted here, coming from the Father, will return to the Father. All things are under his feet, yet he will stoop and he will serve So consider the servant, consider that he's master, consider that he's greater than even master, that he is, in fact, creator. And then consider the service. The service. We'll see this in verses 4 through 6. He rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments. I mean, this is too akin to us today if we were at a formal dinner and and a man getting up and taking off the suit jacket, removing the tie, taking off even the dress shirt, just the undershirt is there to do a menial task, to do some sort of labor. Now what we know is that 
We've read earlier in this service that the disciples have already been vying for, for uh, places of positions of prominence, right? At the right hand, at the left hand, we know in Luke's gospel that he accounts that even in this very context, they're arguing about who is the greatest. And so according to customs of the day, when they came to a meal, that someone, a servant in the house of the host, would wash the feet of those who arrived there. Why? Because they had traveled there. So before they traveled there, they would have bathed, they would have prepared themselves just like you and I would do for some great occasion today. But walking on dusty roads with bare feet or open-toed sandals, their feet would become dirty. And so when they arrived there, their feet would be washed, they would be clean, dried, and they would be ready to prepare to sit down at the banquet table. What you got to know is that none of those disciples would have had a problem washing Jesus' feet. The problem would have been washing one another's feet. And for one of them to take up the basin, to take the towel, to wash others' feet would have been an admission as they're debating on who's the greatest and who gets to seat at the right hand and the left hand would have been an admission, it won't be me. And none of them are going to lose at that. And you can just picture it. The potential of them, of them discussing this. And Jesus just getting up in their immaturity, even without notice maybe. And he begins to prepare to do the task that none of them want to do for each other. And maybe even in that moment, still oblivious to what's going on. Until they feel the first drops of water hit their feet. I can imagine that in that moment, there was a lot of silence. Humility that begot more humility in that room. And Jesus goes to wash their feet. Now we can see how much of a menial task this is in their culture, even within John's gospel. Do you remember the testimony of John the Baptist there in John chapter 1 in the end of the prologue of the gospel? As John the Baptist is testifying about who Jesus is, he says, the one who will come after me is greater than me. He is one of whom's uh, strap, of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. And so, so this was, was him displaying that I, I don't even, I, I don't, I pile in comparison to him. I don't hold a drop in the bucket to him. I'm nothing but dust in the scales compared to Christ. And this is the analogy that he reaches for. I'm not even worthy to remove his shoe. And so it showed culturally how menial and how humble of a task this is that the creator is going to serve the creature and not just serve the creature, but to serve in the most humble way possible. And I can almost assure you that silence fell over the room. So we turn back to verse 1 and just consider the love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Loved them to serve them in such a humble way. The second thing as we consider the serve that I want you to notice is that proximity to Jesus does not equal discipleship. Closeness does not equal a follower. Judas is there. Judas's feet will be washed. Judas is not a true disciple of Christ. Friends, this is a sobering and humbling thing to reflect on. You can attend church. You can be baptized. 
You can take the Lord's Supper and you cannot belong to Christ. This tells us that just mere participation in the activities does not make one a true Christian. It is only those who entrust themselves to Christ by faith, recognizing their need for Christ. The third thing that we can notice here among the served is Peter. Look at what's going on. So he came to Simon Peter, and he says, and this is typical Peter fashion, isn't it? If there was silence in the room, it was until he got to Peter. Lord, you're going to wash my feet? He recognizes, we see again in the tension, the, the humility of the act. Peter has enough humility, as some scholars said, to recognize that the, the master has no business washing the pupil's feet, but he's got enough pride to try to tell the master what to do. Right? He says, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Friends, what we need to recognize right away is that this is pointing to the greater humble task that is before us. This humble washing of feet points to the more humble cross that is ahead. And Jesus is making reference to that. You will understand this afterwards. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. It's almost as like if he says, literally not into, into eternity, not in a million years will you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then typical Peter fashion, he says, well, let's order up a bath then, right? Oh, you mean I won't have any share in you at all? Then you better wash all of me. Let's get the hands and the feet and whatever else we need to cover as well. And then notice what Jesus says to him. Next, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. Then he makes reference, not every one of you, again to Judas. Now, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's noting again the custom of the day. We just mentioned it. You would bathe before you go. Your feet would become dirty when you got there. Your feet would be washed again. He's using a physical analogy to point to a spiritual reality, right? Notice what Leon Morris says in his commentary. He says, it's not the way of cleansing the disciples, but a symbol of that cleansing, right? This foot washing is a symbol of that cleansing. It's not the area of skin that is washed that matters, but the acceptance of Jesus's lowly service. The acceptance of Jesus's lowly service. D.A. Carson says it this way, paraphrasing, that the foot washing points to the passion. That what Jesus is doing here is pointing to what is to come and that Jesus' work on our behalf is sufficient. And then the next thing I want us to notice before we offer up a few questions for us. Look at verses 12 through 20. The second part, if we consider the first part, the second part is go and serve as you've been served. Verse 12 says, when he's washed his feet, he resumed his place. And he says, do you understand what I've done to you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. He affirms that. And then the nucleus of this is 14 through 17. First, we see that Christ is Savior and example. 
He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For that you should do just as I have done to you. So here we see first the Savior and then example as well. We notice this, and we'll come back to it in a moment, that he's pointed Peter, hey, if you're going to have part in me, you must be served by me, ultimately pointing to the cross. And then he's calling them as those who have been served by me to go and serve likewise. And then notice next in verse 16, he says this, we, we serve because we have been served. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And he says, hey, you're not, you're not greater than me. If the king of kings has served us, he's called us to serve others. And then in verse 17, he tells us that this is truly the way of flourishing. Look at what he says in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is one of two beatitudes in the whole entire gospel of John. And this, this word blessed... Some would translate it happy. I think Jonathan Pennington has done a good job translating it as flourishing. There in the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel, flourishing are you. You're you're truly living life as you're supposed to live. You are Psalms 1 of life, right? Bearing fruit and flourishing and and thus by extending flourishing to others if you do what I am calling you to do. And then he ends out this section by saying, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. By the way, we can see here that Christ loves his people and has died for his people because he has chosen his people. He says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted up his heel against me, thus again talking about Judas, lifted up the heel maybe backwards as in about to kick is the analogy, or even a custom of pointing the foot, again, very menial, to point a foot at someone, of taking aim at them. He says, he's lifted up his heel against me, and he says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, two big questions in light of this passage. First, have you been served by Jesus? What about you? What about you? Have you been served by Christ? Let's ask the question this way. Have you ever received a gift that really humbled you? You ever received a gift that really humbled you? A gift that you really needed and therefore you had to admit your need just to receive it? You ever been there? When I was in college, New Orleans, we were coming home. One weekend, Brandon and I, Brandon's my wife, by the way, we were coming home uh, one weekend, and I, I had something that I had to do, an obligation I had to do that weekend, and I needed $150. 150 and I didn't have it. And I can remember praying that week, Lord, would you, just, would you provide this for me? 
because this is not something I can get out of. This is something that I've got to have. And I knew that my mom and dad would give it to me, but also knew that at the current moment that for them to give that to me was going to be an incredible sacrifice on their behalf as well due to some financial hardship that they had at the moment. I prayed all week, Lord, would you provide this money for me? Would you provide this money for me? We drove home that weekend. I got all the way up to the point that I needed it, and I had to go to my parents and and ask, and I said, I don't want to ask. And they gladly gave me the money, and I wept because there was no way for me to get this money outside of myself, and I knew at what sacrifice it was coming to me through someone else. My friends, that was just... $150. $150 is a big deal. If you don't think it is, I'll gladly take it from you today. (laughs) It's still a big deal. But friends, Christ has offered something so much more to us of infinite worth and value. But here's the reality. What you need, all you need to come to Christ is to recognize your need. And to recognize your need humbles us to the dust. But friends, through that humility, he raises us in exaltation with Christ. It's a beautiful thing. But this morning, your greatest need is not yet to hear how you can love others, Your greatest need is to recognize there is one who has loved you in a way that no one else ever could. By recognizing that through your sin and rebellion, just like everyone else in this room, that we've rebelled against a holy God. And we've sought to be our own gods. We've sought to make our own way. We've sought to be the kings of our own own kingdoms and worlds and lives. And you know what? We are not kings who serve. We're kings who serve self, which means we bring nothing but pain, shame, and sorrow into the lives of ourselves and those around us. And we brought ourselves into nothing but a mess that will end in death and judgment before a holy, benevolent God who created us to live for his glory, but we've chosen to live for our glory. Yet, but God... In his mercy and in his love and his grace sent his son to live a life that we could not live, that, that fully honored God the Father by loving and serving others and always obeying the Father in everything, yet went to the cross and bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we could be saved. Took the punishment that we deserved, entered into death, and was raised to victory in life. And that's the service that is far beyond washing our feet of going to the cross, the ultimate humility and exalted to the right hand of the Father that any who would come to him in faith could be saved. See, this morning the most important question for you is have you been served by Christ? Not are you familiar with Christ? Not do you think Christ is neat? Not are you okay with Christ? Not have you had proximity to Christ? Have you grown up in church? Have you been baptized? Have you taken the Lord's Supper? But have you recognized your need? And have you come to Christ as your only hope, falling upon his mercy and grace and saying, save me, a sinner condemned and unclean, and trusting in Christ and Christ alone? This morning, the greatest thing you could do is that. 
is to be humbled by his service and fall at his feet and say, I I need that. I have no hope apart from it. The second big question is for Christians. Those would say, yes, I, I, I have been served by Christ in that way. Well, here's the question for you. Are you seeking to serve like Jesus? Are you seeking to serve like Jesus? Humble service is what we're called to. Humble service. Notice this, that that, that humbled service, this humble service is two things. It's embodied service and it's costly service. Right? It's embodied service and it's costly service. We are increasingly living in a disembodied world. And this is dangerous. And here's what I mean. We increasingly, and and by the way, COVID-19 is only helping this more and more. We increasingly live our lives in un- Uh, in disembodied spaces, social media, work that is digital, that is away from people. And what we don't even realize often is that this is forming us, shaping us, and catechizing us in ways that we don't even realize. And we live in that disembodied space where we're disconnected from people. And and, and what that does is it erodes empathy, it erodes sympathy, it erodes time because it's all about efficiency, it's about quickness. And and so what we do is, is that we live and inhabit those spaces and then we bring that attitude, that mindset that we have been discipled into, into the church and we begin to view other people just like we view avatars online. And I'm telling you, friends, this is incredibly dangerous and it's toxic to the life and the culture of the church. We need embodied service. Now, I'm not big on the language of incarnational ministry because I don't want to take away from the uniqueness of the incarnation of Christ. But Christ came incarnate to serve us, embodied face to face. And we will meet him again as an embodied risen, resurrected Savior. And he has called us that as the Father sent him, so he sends us. And he's called us to be with one another and serve one another. Jesus is there at their feet serving in a non-glamorous way. There was nobody there going, whoop, selfie, Instagram, right? It's not happening and he's serving in this humble way, and, and he's there face to face. I, I love the, the miracle where Jesus goes and he sticks his fingers in the deaf man's ears. I just picture looking at I, I I'm with you. I'm taking on your plight and your blight because I love you, and I want to serve you, and I'm going to set this right. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's what we are to do when we serve one another that we're to come alongside one another. We can use technology as a tool, but friends, let's don't relegate everything to that. Sometimes we just need to go and not send the text, but just hug a neck. Just weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and sit in silence, read scripture, pray, encourage, laugh. And be together. First, humble service is embodied service.
Second, humble service is costly service. Serving others will be costly. Look, Jesus took on our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Second, I mean, 1 Peter 2, 24. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He came and he took on our plight. He took our curse. Friends, serving others requires sacrifice, and if it doesn't cost you something, it's not sacrifice. So it is those moments where it's like, I don't want to do that. Great, now you have a good opportunity to serve. I mean, we have to do this in our home. We have to remind one another of this in our home. When I like to grumble and complain, which is a sin, by the way, do everything without grumbling and complaining, Philippians 2. And my wife can say that in those moments. My kids can say that in those moments. Well, it's not sacrifice if it doesn't cost us something. Now, who told you guys to come and preach my sermon back to me? Right? Oh, that's what we need, is it not, brothers and sisters? Is that not what we need? We need God's word, not just right now on Sunday morning, but we need it to echo and reverberate all throughout our lives, throughout the life of the church, all throughout the week. And I'm telling you, it's in that moment when you have that opportunity to serve someone, and you're thinking, I don't want to do that. You need to, to be reminded by Holy Spirit grace, now is the time that I can serve. This is service. This is service right now. I got one of those calls not that long ago. Are you serious? Are you really asking me to do this? That was what I thought in my heart. I didn't say it out loud. I said it pretty loud in here. But friends, that's when we have the potential, the opportunity to serve like Christ has served us. Serving others will require us to bear one another's burdens. It requires us to come alongside those who are lonely and it may isolate us from other social potentials that we have to be with them and give of ourselves so that they're not lonely. Because this opportunity to come alongside those who are in grief and spend time with them in their grief and weep with them Gives us the time to come alongside others who are experiencing relational strife and get in the messiness of their relationships and try to lovingly point them to Christ. It gives us the opportunity when we're walking with others side by side for the sake of the gospel, Philippians 1.27. It gives us the opportunity to come alongside them and to suffer together. This is what compassion means. Suffer with. Suffer beside walk together. Brothers and sisters, we have those opportunities often and frequently in the life of the church. We are often blind to it. When are reflecting, you can go this afternoon, you can read 1 Corinthians 13. We preached to that section this summer. 
We're talking about it at our school right now, so it's fresh on my mind. Love is patient and kind, right? It's not arrogant or rude or boastful. It's not, it's not thoughtless. That's what rude is. It's not arrogant. It's not boasting of its own accomplishments. It's not envious of saying when you see something good happen to someone else that you want that and can only think about that and don't want them to have that. Even in this passage, look at what we see. Jesus' patience with Peter. Right? I mean, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, Peter, if you'll just shut up for one minute. Right? Just chill out and just watch this and, let's, let's, and then ask me some questions at the end. But Jesus is just patient with him. Aren't you glad he's patient with us? And wow, shouldn't we be patient with one another? Turn over to Philippians 2. This is where we end. It's a beautiful parallel. Paul here is calling the church at Philippi to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Following the passage we're we're about to read, he'll tell them to do everything without grumbling or complaining. And he's telling them not to do anything out of, out of selfish ambition, out of conceit. Uh, in humility, count others as more significant as yourselves. That's, that's 3B of Philippians 2. Look not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. That's 4. Verse 5, have this, mind in, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful statement. He said, I'm calling you to this, and by the way, it's already yours in Christ Jesus. You have it in your union with Christ. And so he calls them to this, but he says, remember how you were served. Verse 6. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now parallel that with what we just read. From God, returning to God. But he emptied himself. He, he, he got up and he took the basin and the bowl and he wrapped his garment around his waist. Taking the form of the servant, he stooped to his knees being born in the likeness of men. Being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. And not just death, even death on a cross. The most humble, humiliating death he could take. Therefore God so highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our brothers and sisters, he humbles us in serving us. And he calls us to humble service. But he exalts us with the Savior. Ephesians 2, 6. And seats us with him in the heavenlies. We've been served beautifully by the servant king. And we've been called to serve one another and to serve the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy to us. Would you use it to melt our hearts of stone, to humble us in our pride and in our conceit and in our selfless ambition, and being humbled by the service that we've been given in Christ. May we with joy and gladness turn and serve one another in this room and the watching world around us. 
trusting you to sustain us, to establish us, and to bring us all the way home. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.